Good morning. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren live together in unity. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A parent once told me that it's kind of a universal law that two siblings can't be in the same room together for more than a few minutes without some kind of fight breaking out. Uh, Maybe that's a slight exaggeration, I don't know. I haven't, um, I don't have any empirical evidence. (laughs) But there are times when it certainly seems to be true. In fact, there have been times when uh, Jenny and I have had dinner ready and um, the table all set. But for the first time all day, our kids are finally playing nicely together. And we don't want to interrupt that. So there have been times when we've just kind of waited, kind of let the food get a little bit cold. (laughs) Because that brief moment of harmony is so precious and such a delicate thing. I don't know if you other parents can relate to that. It's hard to get along, especially with our siblings. And it is a good and pleasant thing when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Our psalm this morning is a picture of unity. It's a beautiful picture. In fact, St. Augustine said, maybe getting a little carried away, but he said, this psalm is so beautiful that it single-handedly gave birth to monasteries by stirring up this desire in us to dwell together in unity. It's a very short psalm, one of the shortest in the entire Psalter. Uh, I love a really short psalm because we're sort of able to hold the whole thing in our heads at one time uh, and just keep it there. So that's what I want us to do this morning. Uh, Hold it in our minds together as we explore it a little bit. The psalm begins with this wonderful declaration of the goodness, the pleasantness of living together in unity. Then we're given two images. First, the oil being poured out on the head of Aaron, the high priest, during his consecration to the priesthood. And second, similarly, similarly, the dew falling on Mount Zion. And then the psalm ends with the promise that God will bestow his blessing of unity there on Mount Zion, and that that blessing is life forevermore. That's it. That's the whole psalm. So what I want to do is first make a few simple observations about the psalm, which I hope will begin to open it up for us a little bit. And then I want to go back and look at the psalm again more deliberately from the perspective of the Christian faith that we confess today. And I think we'll find that it opens itself up even more and reveals things that we could never have seen before the full revelation of God spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's start by noticing that word in verse 1, brethren. It's a word that some more modern translations have, have changed to people or even God's people. Our psalm here, as we've read it this morning, uses the Miles Coverdale translation, 
which is the translation for the Psalter in the Book of Common Prayer and kind of the standard for Anglican worship. So our translation uses the more literal word, brethren. Uh, Now, there's real wisdom in recognizing that not all people are brothers. We have sisters, too. And I appreciate the inclusiveness of those modern translations. But in this case, there's actually something going on that I think changing it from brothers to people uh, actually makes us miss. Remember, this psalm is being written in ancient Israel. And the unity of ancient Israel was the unity of the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes descended from the 12 brothers, the 12 sons of Jacob. So for the psalmist to say how good and pleasant it is for the brothers to dwell together in unity immediately calls to mind those 12 brothers, and now by extension, the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is a picture of the unity of the nation. It's a picture really of the hope of Israel going back to God's first promises to Abraham. This was the dream. This was what God had first chosen them and called them to. It's what they had cried out for in Egypt. It's what Moses had hoped for. For all Israel to live together, united in their common identity as God's chosen people, living in the land he had given them, obeying the law he had given them, worshiping him, faithfully and properly, as he had commanded. So the brothers in verse 1, I think, actually helps us see a fuller picture. And if that's the case, then we can start to see that this unity is not only the absence of conflict. uh, It's not just the times when, as a parent, uh, I don't hear anyone yelling at anyone else downstairs, so I assume everything must be fine. Uh, This unity is something more. It's a positive quality. Not only the absence of conflict, but a picture of the flourishing of the whole nation under God's rule, just as he had envisioned it and called them out of Egypt to bring it to pass. And that brings us to the next thing I want us to notice. To help us understand the kind of unity the psalmist is talking about, we have a simile. It is like fine oil, poured out over Aaron's head, running down over his beard onto the collar of his robe. It's a stirring image, uh, probably not the one we expected, is it? (laughs) What's going on here? Well, this image calls us back to the consecration of Israel's very first high priest, Aaron, the brother of Moses. We can read about the ordination service for Aaron and his sons, to the priesthood in Exodus 29. And it's a fascinating thing to read, uh, both for its similarities and differences from our own ordination services today. After Aaron and his sons had been washed and dressed in their priestly robes and presented for service, the anointing oil was poured out, out of a horn, over their head. These days were a little more reserved, Our priests are anointed with oil, but usually it's just a little sign of the cross on their forehead. They were a little more extravagant back then. And I think that extravagance is part of the point here. Uh, The instruction from the Exodus 29 passage, which is sort of the liturgy for the ordination service, the rubric, if you will, 
It says, pour the oil on his head and anoint him. But this psalm understands that if you do that, the oil is going to run down over his face, down onto his beard. It's going to get on his robes. It's going to get all over everything. It can't be contained. Its fragrance is going to fill the room. The other part of this image that's important, I think, is that this oil comes from above, and it's cascading down, down upon his head, over his beard, onto his robes. And the reason I notice that is because that same idea is picked up in the next image we get, the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. Hermon was a mountain in Israel, it is a mountain in Israel, and it was known for its heavy dew. In fact, even modern-day travelers to Hermon have attested to these heavy dew falls. One account, contemporary account says, we were sufficiently instructed by experience what the psalmist means by the dew of Hermon, our tents being as wet with it as if it had rained all night. Now, Hermon was a relatively high mountain. In fact, I believe it was the tallest mountain in the land. Mount Zion and the hill country around Jerusalem were lower by comparison. So again, we have the dew of the highest mountain falling down onto a lower mountain. Just like the oil ran down from Aaron's head over his face and beard and onto his robes. The anointing oil is a liturgical picture. The consecration of Aaron the high priest. One of the truly holy moments in Israel's history. Now we have dew, a picture of freshness and renewal. God's gift that refreshes the earth every morning. No one has to go out in the morning and call down the dew. It's God's gift, a daily reminder that the world is sustained not by our own efforts, but by God himself. So now that we've begun to open up the imagery of this little psalm, we can begin to see a fuller, a fuller picture. It's a picture of God's good intention for the nation of Israel, the 12 brothers or tribes of Israel, to live in unity together. And that unity is a gift from God above, running down both over the high priest and thus over Israel's worship, but also falling down on the land itself from the highest mountain in the land and so down onto the smaller mountains, too. Now, when we say the psalms in the daily office, you'll notice that after each psalm, we always say the Gloria Patri. That's God, glory be to God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I love that. Because the Gloria Patri is a simple, concise hymn of praise to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Trinity is the pinnacle of all Christian doctrine, a summary of our Christian confession. The Gloria Patri is what the angels and the archangels continually cry, and all of creation with them. And every time we say it, we are invited up into the eternal worship of heaven itself. So putting the Gloria Patri after each psalm reminds us, among other things, 
that we ought to understand the Psalter, and by extension, all of Holy Scripture, through the lens of our Christian confession. These Old Testament songs of praise find their fulfillment in the praise of the church today. And we sing them today in the bright light of the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. After all, it was the same Spirit who is at work in our church today who first spoke these psalms through his prophets. And the church fathers teach us to hear these psalms uh, in the voice of Jesus himself, who always leads his people in worship. So if that's true, it's very easy to understand this psalm as being not only about the nation of Israel, but about the church too. The New Testament makes clear that just as God established the nation of Israel through the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, so he established his church through the 12 apostles. And just as the oil was poured out over Aaron, the high priest, so the Spirit was poured out over the church at Pentecost. God's vision of unity for his people, so beautifully described here by the psalmist, is God's vision for his church, too. His promises way back in Genesis to bring about a new people through Abraham and through Abraham's family now belong to the church. We are the ones united in our common identity as God's chosen people, obeying his law by the power of the Spirit and in Christ, and worshiping him faithfully and properly, just as he commanded us to do. In John 17, just before his suffering, Jesus prays for his disciples, the 12 disciples who will become the the apostles, who represent the 12 tribes of Israel. It's called the high priestly prayer. And in it, Jesus prays that his disciples will be one. Holy Father, he says, keep them in thy name that they may be one, even as we are one. Even as the Holy Trinity is one, so may his disciples be one. Here again, we see the same vision, God's desire for unity among his people. Jesus prays to his Father, I have given them, my disciples, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the same picture we see in our psalm today. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren live together in unity. Now, we know that in a real sense, the church does not live in unity today. The church has been divided again and again down through the ages. The major traditions of the church today aren't even in communion with one another. I don't know how aware you are of the disunity in our own province, the Anglican Church in North America, but our province is bitterly divided. It grieves me. We're divided over whether to ordain women to the priesthood. Some dioceses do, some don't. 
were divided over questions of racial justice, and specifically recently over the validity or helpfulness of critical race theory. Some saying that that kind of approach can be helpful, at least in some ways. Others saying that it's a capitulation to worldly or secular theories that distract us from the gospel. And we're divided over other things too. These are just kind of the most recent and maybe the most pressing. I started this sermon talking about uh, my own children and how hard it is to be in the same room with your sibling uh, without fighting over something. And that's certainly true. But here's the thing. My kids may struggle to get along sometimes, but they are still siblings. Nothing they can ever do will ever change that. Even if they grow up and, God forbid, are estranged from each other and don't speak to each other for years, they will still have the same parents. They're still the children of Jenny and me. They're still siblings. They can't change that. The same is true of the church. There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. As long as we have God as our Father and the church as our mother, we are the children of God in Christ. So that even my estranged sibling is still my sibling. Even my Roman Catholic or Orthodox sibling even the person in my own communion with whom I have sharp disagreements, even on matters that are really important. It's not that the issue we may disagree about isn't important. False teaching is always an enemy of the unity of Christ's church. And that's why we're charged so seriously with guarding our confession and rejecting false doctrine. But in a greater sense, our unity is something we don't have the power to break. We confess this unity in the creed. I believe in the communion of saints. And we will share that communion this morning in just a few minutes. Jesus' Jesus' high priestly prayer didn't go unanswered. It wasn't just a vain hope that Jesus had that we've all unfortunately screwed up. And that's what our psalm is teaching us this morning. The oil is poured out on Aaron. He doesn't pour it on himself. It comes down from above. The unity of the Spirit is God's gift, sweet-smelling, unmerited. It depends on God's work, not ours, which is a good thing. The dew of Hermon falls on the hills of Zion from above, God's gift, flowing down in abundance on the land Uh, where his people dwell. The Lord has ordained the blessing. Here in Zion, where his faithful people worship him, here in our church, Church of the Redeemer, here in our province, the Anglican Church in North America. And what God has ordained will surely come to pass. God's unity comes from above. It was accomplished in Jesus' death on the cross and is poured over us in the gift of his Holy Spirit. It is his work, not ours. 
So despite our sinfulness, despite our petty squabbles, which honestly are often every bit as petty as whatever my own children fight about, we still partake of that unity every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But you know, in another sense, the picture in the psalm has never been fully realized. Yes, we do experience it in part, but never fully. Not the way God wants us to. The story of Israel has been characterized by divisions and factions. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There were Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots. The story of the church, too, has been a long, sad story of division and schisms. This psalm beckons us to a future hope, that one day all of God's children will feast with him in Zion. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Anglicans, Baptists. We'll feast with the same people we've disagreed with most sharply. So as we long for that day, let's live out that future feast in our own lives and in our own churches by humility, by daily repentance, and by trusting that the unity of Christ's church is not something we can ever do or bring about. It is what he has done already. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, Yet saints, their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.